Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. On this episode, I have with me Rashad Tabakawala. Rashad is a senior advisor to the Publicis Group, the world's third largest communication network, where he served most recently as its chief growth officer and chief strategist. He has four decades of marketing experience across several industries with an emphasis on next generation marketing, enabled by new technologies and changing expectations of people. He was named by Business Week as one of the top business leaders for his pioneering innovation, and Time Magazine dubbed him one of five marketing innovators. He is also the author of Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. During our talk today, we're going to explore Rashad's framework of 10 characteristics he used to connect the customer and employees as human beings. We'll also talk about how the CMO role is changing and the three most important questions people should ask themselves about data. So hi, Rashad. Thank you for joining me today. It's such a privilege for you to be uh, with me and on this podcast. Uh, we get, get to talk to several thought leaders and different executives around this emerging world of customer-centric leadership. And you're at the top of the list in my book for a person that has seen quite a bit of change in the industry and is thinking two and three steps out of where the future is going. So maybe we just start with the basics of when you hear those words, customer-centric organization or leadership. And what does that phrase mean to you in your experience out in seeing different industries? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a privilege being on here. So whenever I think of the word customer, the first thing I basically say is let's suppress the word. Hmm. And the reason I believe we need to suppress the word is because if a company looks at the people that they're selling to only as customers they miss the most important thing about them, which is they are people. Hmm. And often you can look at a company through the framework of your brand and your products and services, which you should. But if you only look at them that way, you miss a lot. So let's look at you know, P&G, which is an amazing company, and they don't necessarily do this. They're too amazing to do this. But if P&G were to look at despite all the brands that they have, and many of them being billion dollar brands, if they were to look at everybody who utilizes PNG products to try to understand them, but they did it through the lens of their product, what they would end up is understanding my dirt removal needs. Hmm. That's it. Because right. that's all that PNG does. It removes dirt from my butt, from my teeth, from my clothes. <laughs> I don't define myself with my dirt removal habits, right? So to a great extent, it means you have missed almost everything about my life by looking at me as a customer. Right. That is number one, right? The second is a reason a company will succeed in managing to their customers is that I truly now believe that the single most important thing is the growth, quality, and happiness of your employees. 
which I call employee joy. Mm. Because we often hear about how brands are experiences, and I want to simply ask, how are experiences delivered? So experiences are delivered either through an interaction with human beings right. or through amazing software and UI. Right. So you have to be relatively happy to do the kind of designing that they do at Apple. And you have to be relatively happy to basically be flying a flight attendant at Southwest. And you probably are not happy being a flight attendant at United. And simply that explains the difference between those two airlines. They fly the same planes. They, have, they all have to do with the FAA. So my basic belief is a fixation on customers will get you nowhere. Think about people and think about employees first, then think about customers. Well, you're one of the first uh, thought leaders I've spoken to that have zeroed in on that element right away as a first step. And you must believe that or have a belief system somewhere that says, creativity and ideas and things that delight you come from a higher level of engagement for employees than what typical, well, as Gallup said, 85% of employees are show up a bit disengaged. And how can you create a great customer experience if that's the place you're coming from? Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. So what basically happens is if your employees are not engaged, and if you are not thinking about the people you're selling to as full people, it becomes very hard to move them or to move your people to serve them. But when you do that, then obviously a lot of the fundamentals of customer, consumer, member, all those begin to also begin to come in. But when you start just with a customer perspective, you sometimes miss the key things. So that's why I always say, suppress customer initially, think employee and people, people being the person you're trying to sell to or engage with, and employee, obviously, the people in your company, and then build from there. Well, I'm going to have to change the name of my initiative then to something else, but I get what you're saying and I fully, fully agree with it. Question for you that I get a lot and see a lot is when you talk about people and trying to deliver a product or service that is aligned with what people want and their expectations, it's easy to start with the dissatisfiers of what you're providing. You find that in your net promoter score, work out the dissatisfiers. And those are almost, I would call them low-hanging fruit. You know, get rid of the things that really annoy people. But then when you start to work on through your teams, your CX teams and whatever you're doing, what customers really want and build a product to that, very few companies are actually doing that. So how do you, any words of advice on how to find what people want? Yeah, so I basically say that there are 10 things that people want. Four of them are rational, three of them are emotional, and three of them are spiritual. And the more of these you can give them, the more you will be successful. And sometimes when you can only give them primarily the rational, that's perfectly fine, but then you do that. So the rational is simple, a simple word, it's S-A-V-E, save, okay? The S stands for people are looking for solutions, they're not looking to buy your products or services. The A is to be accessible, and accessible means everything from being available, this is the multi-channel, being accessible when it comes down to packet size, pricing, et cetera. They're looking for value, which is not necessarily the cheapest thing, but relative to how they measure it. And E, they're looking for an experience, which is something that is worth dealing with. So solution, access, value, and experience are the rational things that they're looking for. I love that. It's easy to remember. 
and it probably does play into saving time, saving money, saving frustration. Exactly. It's all of those things. And it's simply safe, which is what. Then the second thing that they're looking for is what I basically call the emotional. And the emotional they're basically looking for is wealth, fame, and power, which is, can this help me make more money or make me feel richer, which is the wealth? Can this make me more famous, more liked, sexier, (laughs) right? And power is, does this give me, like I'm the big kid on the block or whatever, right? That's the emotional. And there are lots of products that feed to money fame, right? The last thing that they basically need, which is sometimes the hardest to get to, is purpose, connection, and growth, (laughs) which is purpose is to find meaning and if how their products and services help them find meaning, which is purpose, right? They obviously are looking for connection. Do they feel connected to the company? Do they feel connected to other people? Human beings are connected, right? So this connected. And then the final one is growth. Can they grow as people? Can they grow? Those are the 10 characteristics. And the reason I explain that that way is when you have someone working in your company, forget the customer, say someone who's an employee in your company, and this works exactly the same whether it's an employee or someone you're selling to. So I've come up with a model that works regardless of, as long as the person on the other side is a human being. It doesn't work with a bot or a machine, right? But as long as the human being, it works. And as an employee, I might basically be working at a company doing solutions, access, value, experience. But I basically want good salary. I want to be recognized by company, and I want autonomy. And those are money, fame, and power, right? And I want to feel connected to my boss, to my, my colleagues. So that's a form of connection. I want to be happy and glad about the company I'm working in. That's purpose. And I want to continue to grow, grow my salary, grow my skill sets, grow my network. And it's that simple. I brought it down to those 10 words working both sides in English. Yeah, exactly. Well, it would seem to me if you get good at the discipline of executing against those 10 things, it will be a natural overflow into how you interact with people or customers, if you will. Exactly. And with anybody, with people, with customers, it all works. And you recognize that some are different, so you treat them differently. And you, But it gives you a framework to play with. It's not necessarily this is the rule book, or this is a framework. And you might say, I'm going to overemphasize this and underemphasize this. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. That's interesting. Really, really helpful insight. I've never heard it put that way. This has already been worth the price of admission for those uh, watching the podcast in my book. I'd love to hear your thoughts a bit around the top of organizations today when, and let's just stick for this idea of being customer-centric or people-centric externally. That's a pretty big shift for a lot of companies, especially in today's pressures for quarterly P&L hitting and all the changes happening in COVID where Customers' expectations have rapidly ratcheted to the top. Omnichannel is now accelerating. But a lot of senior people, especially if you're a CMO, probably haven't built an experience base across the broader sense. So what are you seeing in terms of the briefs or the kind of things happening at that CMO space? So there are four very big changes that have taken place. Two that were taking place prior to COVID and two that have taken place post-COVID. And the two that was taking place prior to COVID is because you and I, when we are at home, 
you know, not when we are doing our day or were doing our day jobs, are the worst nightmare of every business person and marketer when we're at home. Because what has happened is because of modern technology, particularly what I call the first connected age, which was search and e-commerce, and the second connected age, which is mobile and social, mm-hmm. right? I have basically got godlike power. So, you know, my old stuff is we're marketing to the gods. So I've got godlike power. I can go and I can check your price, figure out what other people are doing, buy instantaneously, have these high expectations, right? And I'm, I am that. And then inside the company, we're talking about how we're enabling and empowering people. And my whole stuff is I'm already enabled and empowered. I don't understand what you're doing to help me enable and empower. So the rise of what I would call empowered people has led to the recognition that marketing is equal to importance as finance and operations. Marketing was always basically a lower level part of the organization. It was either considered to be a cost center, something to do with ads and promotion elements, and don't you worry about it. But one, because of the customer experience, the customer or the consumer or the person having godlike power, they have power. And, you know, I grew up here in Chicago or in graduate school year, and I went to University of Chicago, but in Northwestern, we had Dodge Schultz, the famous professor. I mean, Dodd Schultz, uh, Philip Kotler. Philip Kotler basically wrote the book on marketing. And he basically said, marketing is understanding and meeting customer requirements. But when customers become godlike power, you better understand what the hell you're doing, right? And in the years when I was working on the PNGs, et cetera, for many years, they weren't really marketing companies. They were basically manufacturing and logistics and distribution companies. But now you have to be a truly marketing company, which obviously they and many other companies have become. But you know, to, to a great extent, that's what. The second is because also of technology, the blur between what a brand is and what an experience is, that brands become experiences and experiences become brand. Therefore, the way you deliver a product and service, the way you design a product and service becomes part of your marketing. So marketing isn't a lipstick that you put on the pig, it's how you grow the pig, okay? Uh, And so those two were already occurring pre-COVID had been going on for three, four, five years. And that continues to obviously accelerate. But the two things that happened post-COVID are the following. The first is a recognition that change was not as difficult as it looked. That change was a mental construct. As I often tell younger people now who basically say, my bosses don't get it. I said, your bosses did not get it in December, 2019. I can assure you that your bosses get it in September 2020, right? The biggest change that I've basically seen is how every senior person has been zoomed into the future, right? They have been forced to rethink things in every way, how they run a company, how much they rely on certain people. Why do they have all these people who basically manage their meetings? There's this entire mindset, which is, the senior people in companies are rewiring their minds. Now, they're still in the process where the old wiring has fallen apart and they don't exactly know how they're rewiring, but they're rewiring. Well, and to your point, I think a lot of what's happening too is there was a culling of objectives at the senior level that to them, it's pretty easy to do eight objectives. What's wrong with eight? 
got down to some very focused one or two objectives. It's very focused. Yeah. So nothing concentrates the mind like a combination of I got to survive it and running out of money. Or by the way, my business model doesn't make any sense. Or by the way, my entire industry shut down. So now what do I do? So that has become a very big thing. And then the last one, which ties into the first one, is the increasing belief now that you have to combine data and humanity. You have to combine art and science. There had started to be a tilt on running the business through the science and the numbers and numerics, right? And a line I often now tell our C-level executives is data is like electricity. You can't do without it. But tell me which companies differentiate themselves on electricity. Exactly. Okay. And so because we're going between the steam age and the electric age, we get very excited. But eventually, outside obviously of a few companies, very few people will have the, so much data that it, and special data that it differentiates them, right? Without data, you won't able to compete. But data alone is not the way you're going to compete. And so it's, similarly, technology is an important input, but so are people. So how do you combine art and science? Which is one of the reasons, for instance, my book has done really well, because it's how do you marry the story and the spreadsheet? You know, I call it restoring the soul of business, staying human in an age of data, right? Which is how do you combine the two? And so a lot of C-level executives, a lot of young people say, wait, you're basically, you have an advanced degree in mathematics. You have an MBA in finance from the University of Chicago, right? You've led a lot of digital and data initiatives, and you're talking about the two being important together. I said, yes. Because if you get all data-driven, you end up with Wells Fargo, you open up fake accounts, right? If you basically get all vision and story-driven, you end up with WeWork. Yeah, it's interesting, Rashad, that I think, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but it feels to me like there's been a bit of an overselling on the delivery of what data science and customer data warehouses can actually deliver. And there's loads and loads of people jumping on that investment in that tech stack and transformation of that space. But what I've been finding is that the things that really drive behavior is a bit still underneath those data lakes that live in the humanities. That it, it, it does. And a very simple question that I would ask your listeners to ask themselves are these three simple questions. Question number one, do you or do you not agree that we choose with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did? Okay, number one. Number two, out of your last 10 decisions, tell me which ones were primarily made on gut, instinct, and emotion, and which were made on data. Most of life's decisions are not made on data, because if they were that way, none of us would have been born, because our parents would have computed the pain and cost of bringing up kids, and they said it doesn't compute. Okay, so anything worthwhile in life actually is not data-driven. No, probably can't even be measured. How much do you love your child? How are you going to measure that? Third is if you believe it's going to be primarily data, then you are going to be out of a job within three to five years as AI gets better and better. Ah, good point there. Right? So it's, it's how do you work with the machine, not against the machine, or become just the machine because then you have no job. So when I ask those three questions, everything becomes very, very different. You don't make decisions that way. The most important decisions aren't that. And if that's the way decisions, you're going to lose your job. So will you stop worshiping at the altar of data? 100%. And, and, and quite honestly, whatever data you had that's past two years old at this point, given what's just happened, it's no good. It is. 
in fact, what I basically call is data lakes are swarms of outdated dead fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you could be so brave to say that because I've always wondered what is actually swimming in those data lakes. It sucks. And what happens is because I know so much about it, I basically say the biggest problem with, and this is the thing which has really opened up the eyes of a lot of C-level executives because everyone are really smart. But sometimes, you know, you get a little insecure when people talk to you about all these terms that you don't understand. And then you start not questioning. So I basically, their thing is like, wait a second, this is extremely important, like a lot of other things, but I can't run my company just on that. And I explain to them in English, you know, my stuff is, let me explain to you in English. I'm not going to talk about all these funny words. And I'm just going to try to make it in English so you, you get the concepts. Then you need, obviously, the experts, because neither me nor the C-level person has got the analytical and AI and other ability. But you should have enough to be able to ask the right questions and know whether you're hiring a fool or not. Yes, 100%. And the other thing I would say is use your own experiences sometimes as a gut check, because if Amazon is one of the world leaders in being able to use customer data and data science and algorithms and, and such, if I go do a search in Amazon for a circular saw, a hundred data lakes get something dropped in them telling them that I'm a carpenter. And then, and, and I'm not a carpenter, but. Right, but eventually you'll be followed by so many carpentry oriented messages. You will want to buy a saw and cut your head off. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they just trying to convince me, no, you really are a carpenter. You just don't know it yet. And so, but yeah, so that's the best of the best of the best, right? And so if. It is, and that's the key thing. So a lot of it is, one is that a lot of management has been both zoomed into the future, but the second is they realize it's the humanity. And the part of the reason they see that is I wrote a piece, which I'll send you, and you, know, you can either, if you like it, you can add it to the show notes as a link. I wrote a piece in May called The Great Reinvention. And what I did was I actually wrote four blog pieces, one week apart, and each one had a theme. And then I eventually put it together and just called it. So the first one was called The Great Reinvention Address Fragility. But eventually I put it all together. And then I made it look really good. I hired someone to make it look good because executives don't read blog posts. I had to put together a nice Adobe Spark document that they had. You know, So that was remember, that's accessible. I've got to make myself accessible. So yeah, this is the way you want to eat your stuff. I'm going to provide it that way, you know, mash ground so you can eat it like a baby. So here it is. Okay. But what happens is that is being discussed by at least six or eight boardrooms right now, six in the United States and two FTSE companies, right? Because it was very simple. It was written in English. But what people liked was I basically said, I'm going to try to think about COVID-19, but I'm going to put some thoughts to you. First is there's no new normal. Hmm. There's going to be a new strange. Hmm. Drop the word new normal. Hmm. Second, this is nothing like SARS, MERS, 9-11, Great Recession. Here's why it's different. And one of the key things is if you take people all over the world and make them start or stop doing something for three to six months, their behaviors change. Their mind gets recirculated, which means any plan that you have written December 2019 or earlier has to be revisited and may have to be dumped, right? The other is we're also entering an age where there's new technology, just like the first and second connected age. We now have AI and 5G and you know whole bunches of things like voice and cloud, which means new categories and competitors and consumer needs are being formed. And the mistake that GM and Ford made coming out of the Great Recession 
is they went back to normal, not recognizing new technologies and new mindsets. And that's when Tesla and Uber were born, right? P&G came back and Gillette and Schick started adding more blades. But because of social media and YouTube, Dollar Shave Club was born, right? So the, the thing that, uh, so my stuff is you're not going to, you're not restarting your business, you're starting your business. You're starting your business in the new strange. You're not restarting your business for the new normal. Well, I heard a quote the other day that everybody now is a startup. Is that kind of what you're saying, right? Exactly. You're starting your business and here's how you need to do it. Eventually happened why they liked it is I basically said, here is how business, individuals, and society is fragile, right? And I called out a lot of things which actually indicated that the Black Lives Matter thing was going to happen. I wrote this in early May, Hmm. right? Which was one. But then I said, but we need eventually resilience. So how does businesses, society, and individuals become resilient? And then I end up with resurrection. How do we get reborn? Mm -hmm. Love that. Right. And what they liked was I was using human terms and people, fragility, resurrection, resilience, right? While saying you need to combine this and this. And the biggest thing was, hey, you've reminded us that this is about humans and technology and we had become technology and data and speed, and we had forgotten the humans. Yeah. So those are the two big changes, you know, post, which is a their minds are been zoomed into the future, and they're also thinking much more from, which is purpose, yeah, experiences, all of those kinds of stuff. So in fact, I tell people the new ESG is employee, yep, society, and government, right? And a company that we both admire, Walmart, would be interested in this, which is a. Look after your employees, which is what they're doing now with the new CEO. Now he's been around for a while, which is number one. Play a role in society, which they've done, and pay your taxes to government, which Amazon does not do. Right. So <laughs> right. when you think about it, Amazon doesn't look after its warehouse employees. Right. Has some negative, and some positive in society, and refuses to pay taxes. Yeah. So for me, the new ESG is don't talk to me about purpose and value. If you're basically not paying taxes, we should provide for healthcare and education. Right which is number one, you don't look after your employees who are your, in your, in your warehouses uh, and there are the downsides of your society. Don't tell me about all your crazy shit. Right. Yeah. You know, you said something I thought was very inspiring and, and probably to any senior executive that may not have their head around all the complexity around technology and what technology is going to do. You brought it back to, wait a minute, you know, that's not what this is about. It's about the humanness and things that are deeper than that, that's what senior executives are good at. And don't be frightened by a tech or, or smokescreened, more importantly. Absolutely. And often what I remind senior executives is they actually are much better than they think they are. They sometimes became a little insecure. And as a result, they surrounded themselves by a bunch of charlatans and you know press releases and stuff like that. And I said, you would not have got here. I've worked with too many smart people to recognize that I'm usually the stupidest person in the room, and which is a smart thing to be aware of. But one of the key things is you guys and gals are really good. Yeah, right. Right. But you, obviously you need experts. You've got to ask your question, but the humanity of it is, and you have to learn new things. But now that they've been zoomed into the future, this doesn't scare them as much. No. Well, and the future that we're looking at is still going to rock on top of, as a fulcrum, the human condition, more so than and no matter how much technology advances. You've got to stay up with that. But you know, where are we as a human? That's going to be, in my opinion, that's where the secret sauce is and trying to figure out your roadmaps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Great. Well, this has been fantastic. My mind's been blown on a few fronts, different ways of thinking about things. Um, I'm going to put some stuff in the show notes that uh, will help people find out more about what you're doing and learn more about uh, that. And so Perfect. Give me a list of what you want in there. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll send you basically where people get my book if they're interested, but more importantly, it's this great reinvention article, my newsletter kind of stuff. And that'll basically sort of give them ways to both not only engage, but to learn and to go find the things they want to do. Excellent. And I have one final question for you. Uh, you speak a lot and do a lot with universities, University of Chicago, Northwestern, University of Arkansas is obviously sponsoring this initiative. Any comments to students that are thinking about a career in whether it's customer experience or marketing today, what are the key things you might be telling them to think about? I would basically tell them four things. The first thing I would basically say is we're entering a world where marketing is in a renaissance. So don't believe that marketing is not in renaissance because we have people with godlike power. Marketing is going to be more important than ever before. So anything to do with people, customers, consumers, and marketing is a great industry. So that's number one. Number two is please recognize that in order to be successful, you are going to have to marry math and meaning. Hmm. Right, you're going to have to be good at math. I'm not saying you yourself will be good at mathematics, but you got to pay attention to data and reality, and you can't just invent anything out of the thing. But at the same time, to extract meaning and purpose and all of those things. The third is make sure you recognize that when you come out of school, regardless of how successful you are, you are likely to work for 50 years, hmm. and that's because unless something goes really wrong, you're going to have a healthy life at least 75, and hopefully you'll live to 90 or 95. And as a result, when you take the first job, take the least sucky job you can get, and one that basically you think you might actually be good at, and don't necessarily price yourself out of your dreams by having a job that pays a lot and then increases your lifestyle and you're miserable for the rest of your life. So don't price yourself out of your dreams. And the last one, which they may not like to hear, especially since it's quite bugging to study all the time, is make sure that when you come out of school, you continue to be a student because the world keeps changing. So try to set aside a half an hour, an hour a day to keep learning. Oh, great advice. I, agree. I couldn't agree more, especially on being a lifelong learner. It's just so much to learn and so much is changing, which makes it fun for me. Right. But going to school, investing in an education is the best thing you all can do. So congratulations. Yeah. Excellent. Well, great advice. Great being with you, Rashad. Uh, and best of luck to you in your chapters of life as you continue to be an influencer. Perfect. Absolutely. And we will always remain connected. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You just listened to an amazing conversation with Rashad Tabakawala. I enjoyed talking to Rashad about the pre and post COVID changes in the CMO role and what three questions people should ask themselves about data. Rashad also shared his key insight into the customer and employee mindsets, including his framework to connect with them as human beings. Which of the 10 characteristics were your favorite? Let me know in the comments and thank you for listening to this episode of It's a Customer's World. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. 
It's a Customers World podcast as a product of the University of Arkansas Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production.